Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, Mark, explain to me about the pink moon last night. Oh, uh, well, yes, there was, a, there was a pink moon once a year, I think, there's, or sometimes a year. There's a, there's a strange kind of harvest moon, isn't it, that appears to have a pink colour. Actually, it didn't look terribly pink last night, but everyone was out in their gardens and looking out windows and photographing it and, uh, and remembering uh, Nick Drake, of course, who produced a record called Pink Moon. And my youngest son sent a picture of him and his mate from Millennium Bridge with this fantastic moon in the background. So there was a lot of talk about Nick Drake last night. He was back in focus. Talking of nature, I lay in bed this morning listening to birdsong. Isn't it extraordinary? It's just absolutely extraordinary in London, you know, because I'm not that far from the North Circular, as you know. And normally, you know, that's the loudest noise is just that steady thrum of traffic that goes on absolutely all the time. But There's a, you get very little on the Today programme. If you listen to the Today programme, you get people in, and they're all at home, obviously, on their laptops, and they're all talking about immensely serious topics, uh, as you might imagine. But in the background, you can hear chirping birds. <laughs> That's so extraordinary. <laughs> Completely out of context with what they're talking about, you know. I like the idea of sound that leaks into things that isn't supposed to get into those things. You know Joe Henry, the great Joe Henry, the, the producers, loads of... Really good records of his own, and they also produced a Billy Bragg record. Brilliant Billy Bragg and, record. And a loud Wainwright record. I mean, he's a really good producer. And I think he does them all in his home in Los Angeles. And I always get the, the impression it's quite an old house. And one of the things he does is he leaves the windows open as they're recording. I've heard those. So you will occasionally hear buses going past and yeah. things like that. I, I like Barking that. dogs. Yes, that's barking, right. Barking dogs. Barking dogs on records. Because famously on... Um, there are some. Beach Boys Pet Sounds, isn't it? Is there at the, of course, at the end, surely, I think it's at the very end, um, you hear a train and then you hear, you hear a dog barking, don't you? Which may have been where Pet Sounds came from. As a title, my favourite bit of uh, extraneous noise is the beginning of "Since I've Been Loving You" by the by the uh, by, by the Led Zeppelin. Where you hear the squeaking drum pedal, 
of uh, John Bonham's drum. Oh, you, you do? You can hear it really clearly, yeah. Fantastic. Yay. Nobody bothered to fix those things in no, those no. days, did they, at all? So talking of the radio this morning, I can't get over the fact that I was listening to Radio 3 this morning. And, and on the Radio 3 News, they had about, probably about two minutes about John Prime who sadly died um, yesterday. Um, he'd been ill for a while. And um, and I thought it was just extraordinary, because John Prine, in, in his pomp, would not have got on Radio 1, would not have got on Radio 2. Not remotely. Uh, would certainly not have got on Radio 4. And Radio 3 wouldn't even have heard of him. No. Know? It's just absolutely extraordinary how those, uh, those things these get so much play you know nowadays across across the networks because john prine um i always loved john prine and uh famously made his uh, made his first album i think in 1971 which has as has been noted was a a banny year for rock and roll albums and yeah, uh, somebody wrote a book about that yeah somebody, somebody wrote a book quite about good that. apparently i've not read it but apparently it's quite <laughs> good yeah and um you know he was kind of Really interesting character. He got swept up as being the new, you know, one of the many new Dylans. Dylans. Who were all the new Dylans? Can you? How many new Dylans can you name from that period, Mark? Come on. Around then, well, later on there was Steve Forbert, wasn't there? That was later. uh, Yeah, that's later. Would it be Chris Christopherson? Would he have been one? Um, Uh, Possibly, he might have been one. Uh, Loudon Wainwright was was definitely one. Uh, I think John Prine's mate Steve Goodman was one as well. I think Elliot Murphy was one. I think somewhere there's a picture that may have run in Rolling Stone or something like that at the time of a lineup of New Dylans caught backstage at some at some folk club. Would they have voluntarily posed for that? Because that's not very good publicity. Well, yeah, did somebody uh, just did somebody just just add that caption? Oh, possibly, possibly. I don't think people took those things terribly, terribly seriously in those days. But um, the thing that's interesting to me about John Prine, looking back, is he, is uh, he was the first person to write songs about a number of things that are quite commonplace nowadays to write songs about, but weren't at the time he did it. Do you know that song "Hello" in there? You know, yeah. which, is, which is about old people, and nobody wrote songs about old people. You know, he wrote. Sam Stone, which was the song that brought him whatever kind of prominence he had at the time, which was about a returning Vietnam vet. And I suppose it's a song about, you know, post-traumatic stress, you know, before the term was before the term was invented. And he wrote that song Paradise. Which is a, v- a very, very original way of looking at that whole thing, because at the time people were just complaining about the, uh, the the notion of people being involved in the war in the first place. In the first place. Going, going no, beyond in that. The, in the damage. Amazing. And, you know, yeah, people absolutely. Come in, yeah. And Paradise, that song Paradise, um, which is about environment, environmental damage, you know, uh, about... Uh, Muhlenberg County, and uh, and uh, you know the the there were was the steel came company came with the world's biggest shovel, and they just kind of made a big hole in the middle of paradise, and he, he right throughout his career he wrote he wrote the kind of songs that nobody else quite right quite wrote he wrote a fantastic song called Unwed Fathers have you heard that No, I don't know. Uh, it's it's about you know guys who walk out on you know pregnant girlfriends. And wed fathers that can't be bothered. 
<laughs> they just they just run away. They just wander away. There was a song he wrote in 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 later in in life with uh, with uh, recorded with Iris Dement. He did a whole album actually of, of duets with various people. Oh, he did. Iris Dement, and I'm sure you know that. And uh, it's called In Spite of Ourselves. <laughs> yes. And if people haven't heard it, I cannot recommend it more. It's just about the idea of two people just kind of rubbing along together in a relationship <laughs> and getting by, you know. And it's just got such great lines. I remember, she don't like her, her eggs all runny. She thinks crossing her legs, her legs is, is funny. It's yes. funny. <laughs> That's just such a great idea that you amuse yourself on long winter evenings by just crossing your legs and then bursting out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and clearly the sex, the sex has kind of fizzled out a bit. It's just something like, uh, he ain't got laid in a month of Sundays. I caught him once, he was sniffing my undies. It's absolutely <laughs> amazing. <laughs> he ain't too sharp, but he gets things done. He drinks his beer like his oxygen. And it's just lovely. And in spite of ourselves, we'll end up sitting on a rainbow. And it's all about uh, the, 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 their relationship is the big door prize. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. We'll, have, we'll have nothing but big old, uh, big old hearts dancing in our eyes. It's just absolutely classic song about what real life kind of romance and, and relationships really can end up being he was, you know? he was a he, he was a lovely guy I interviewed him a couple of times and um he uh if if you want to get an idea of what john prime was all about if you go on spotify or other streaming services that are available um and listen to his live version of a wonderful song he wrote called the eldest baby in the world uh, with, a, um, with a great stage intro with a brilliant stage intro, which is all about his mate Donny Fritz, who was a keyboard player with Chris Christopherson. And <laughs> Donny Fritz was so relaxed that he used to lean over when he was listening to you. He'd just lean forward towards you. And he'd be known as the leaning man from Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> he was the kind of guy... You know, and so many, so many musicians feel that... Talking before songs is somehow not what they ought to be doing. And John Prime was not like that at all. John Prime was a really easy conversationalist, you know, completely engaged his audience all the time. And I was, um, and he was discovered. The legend goes that he, he came from Chicago was where he, he came from. Maybe discovered by Chris Christopherson. Was well, he right? was kind was of, yeah. And the, the, it's an extraordinary story, actually. It's a really complicated story. That uh, I think Paul Anker, you know, fifties, sixties, teen pop star, at the time was was trying to get into management. And uh, he was on a plane to Chicago with Chris Christopherson. And I think they were both playing in Chicago. And Paul Anker said, I'm doing one of your songs. And this is the time when Chris Christopherson was the man. You know, everybody was doing Chris Christopherson's songs. Help me make it through the night and all that kind of thing. He said, I'm doing one of your songs. You should come and see me. So Chris Christopherson went to see him. And then the two, and then Anker went to see Chris Christopherson. And Chris Christopherson, sorry, it's a long story. It involves a no, lot of musicians, on. this. Chris Christopherson was being supported by local talent Steve Goodman, the young man who wrote City of New Orleans and various really good songs. They died many years ago. And, uh, and they're really impressed with Goodman. And Goodman is so kind of generous. He says, oh, if you think I'm good, you should hear my mate John Prine. And so they go, they go down to where John Prine has been playing in a place called, I can't remember, a bar somewhere. 
and the tables are on the on the chairs. You know, they're just sweeping up. It's all kind of done with. John Prine's just chit chatting with the owner, and in walks Steve Goodman, Chris Christopherson, and Paul Anker, and so it says. Oh, I, hear, I hear you're good, kid. <laughs> Can you play some songs? So, so, so what he, he said, said, so he went back on stage and just sat down and played some songs. He played about five songs, you know, to an audience of those three: Donald, in the Lydia, and somebody and hoovering, Stone, or whatever. And they were immensely impressed. And uh, and so, anchor, I think it was arranged for him to come to New York, and he and uh, both he and Goodman were playing in New York, and he got. He got Jerry Wexler down from Atlantic Records down to see him, who pretty much went and saw him and said, and then after the show said, okay, here's the deal, $50,000, we'll make a record, can you do next week kind of thing. Fantastic story. And and, uh, suddenly these guys are whisked from absolute obscurity in Chicago to, to the very highest life in New York, and they go to a party at Paul Anker's, fabulous penthouse apartment somewhere and the doorbell rings and john Bryan goes to the door and uh, opens the door and there's tom jones with a blonde under one arm and a brunette <laughs> Natch. <laughs> and he of thinks he whoa was. this is the business to me. that's fantastic <laughs> so uh, he was he was a he was a lovely guy and a terrific artist and uh, you know it's it's sadly missed, you know, and not the only one in the in in the last. Uh, oh well, the, the one I noticed that done the other day was Adam Schlesinger of, of Fountains of Wayne, who we used to love. A Word magazine, a big popular group, we just loved them. Do you remember they those were, Fountains of Wayne records? They oh, really so, good. I, 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 I love them. Um, they had a combination. It sounded like they'd grown up just listening to the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and the Hollies, and it was just pure. Simple old-fashioned pop group. They're in that. Uh, they're in that sort of um, tradition, I suppose, of people like Squeeze too, actually. And they wrote about um, kind of suburban life, but not kind of, but but more kind of middle-class East Coast suburban life. You know, the the guy who died was Adam Schlesinger, who was one of the songwriters who wrote with a guy called Chris Collingwood. Collingwood, I think, used to sing all the songs. And they were kind of Lennon McCartney. They 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 gave us themselves sort of dual credits for all their songs, but. I think probably wrote individually. And they wrote those fabulous songs. And a lot of them were about a kind of listless, um, kind of teenage torpor of these kind yeah. of hopeless teenagers on, on, on out in Fire Island and on the East Coast. There's one called Hackensack. Oh, God, that? yes. If, I, if a, I ever a, a go kid, back to Hackensack. Yeah, it's about a kid who's at school and there's a girl in his class who he really likes, who, who's gone on to be very successful in the movies in, in L.A. This guy works in the record store and then he finishes up working for his dad, scraping the paint off the hardwood floors. The hours are pretty bad, he says, you know. And so he's obviously got a kind of no life and he still somehow thinks that this girl, if she ever comes back to Hackensack, he'll still be there waiting for her. It contains, contains one of my great favourite couplets, actually, which is, I saw you talk to Christopher Walken on my TV screen, (laughs) which is great. And then there's one called Stacey's Mum, which was their big hit, actually. I remember they did that, all the big American chat shows. It was was a wonderful thing. It's a kind of Mrs. Robinson fantasy about this kind of 16-year-old kid, you know, sunbathing uh, at his mate's place and and fancying the mum, thinking he's got a bit of a chance with her. Stacey's Mum has got it going on, has got his going on. And Red, Red Dragon to Two, which is brilliant, which is about a teenager wanting to impress this girl. And so he thinks if he goes to, I'm going to get myself engraved. 
And he thinks if I go and get a tattoo, that I'll show that he'll show her that I've got the kind of courage and personality to to be the kind of guy that, she, that uh, she'd want to go out with. And Fire Island, lovely song called Fire Island about just teenage house parties when the parents are away. They're just really clever and 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 and, and slightly sad. Slightly yeah, slightly but slightly, you, slightly, you're, you're right. It, there of, was always that sad, that sad tone. One that my personal favourite, and I haven't listened to it in a while. I will listen to it after this. Is uh, was a fine day for a parade. Oh, that's a fantastic song. <laughs> oh, that's, a, that's a really sad song because it's about a it's about a, a, a mum, isn't it? Who I think whose daughter has gone off and joined a a sacred order, isn't that right? Oh, Where they yes. get stoned and they till the earth or something. And she, uh, I can't remember how it goes now, but she just drinks. She, she fills up her days with bourbon. That's right. Oh, because uh, that's right. Because beer is so beer suburban. Beer is so suburban and déclassé for what it's worth. Déclassé. Surely that contains the word déclassé. Surely the only song that's got yeah. the word déclassé in it. I hadn't thought of that for ages. Oh, that's a great I, song. I should, My favourite. I've got to add one more. What, what is one called? Seat backs and tray tables up. Do you know that one? Oh, Which is no, just about the kind of hypnotic, mesmerising tedium of being on on uh, internal uh, uh, flights around America and trading one town for another. And you're just that whole thing of just being on the flight, putting your seat backs up, looking out the window, yeah. arriving in the You've no idea. They all look the same. And it's just wonderful about the whole whole rigmarole of air travel. It's beautifully... Yeah. But they have a, they have a slightly... Um, they're a poignancy about them, don't they? They're slightly, slightly kind of... Um, Definitely. Yeah, an emotional tone. They're brilliant, I think. We can't let the, we, we can't let this opportunity go by without saying something about about a former colleague of ours who sadly died uh, a few days ago, and that's Mike Appleton of uh, the wonderful Mike, old Grey Whistle Test. Uh, Mike, who was the kind of the producer, originally started the program. Back in 1971, and then subsequently was the kind of editor and in charge of it and so forth, and um, and uh, was also the person behind Live Aid. You know, so if you've, uh, you know, if you've, and the interesting thing about about Whistle Test is, you know, that, that uh, frequently derided during his lifetime. Guy was, <laughs> and uh, but but now. Now is, uh, is is seen as a bit of a beacon, I suppose, of a certain kind of music, and it's, it's kind of got a got an additional life thanks to YouTube, you know, because all this stuff just lives on in a thousand clips, doesn't it? Of Raikou well, it was, and when you and I were were on it, you were on a bit earlier than me. I can't remember about eighty one or something like that, but I, I joined about eighty two. Maybe you were on a bit earlier. But it, no, it was eight, in, in battle yeah, time, you know. We, we were yeah. up against things eventually, things like the tube, and we were up against so it goes before that, and um, and so it never got never got very good press. It was fantastically unfashionable, and Mike's choices. Well, you made this. Uh, you made this point in that fantastic blog that you wrote the other day about him. Mean, his choices were very unfashionable too. But that's a good thing, because you know it people is. talk about all the fashionable stuff that was on there. He had Rand Newman. He had Bill Withers uh, doing "Ain't No Sunshine." He had Beefheart. I can remember. I can remember watching Beefheart upon the upon the My Oh My. But, uh, Tim Buckley, Tom Waits upon the My Oh My. Kevin has that brilliant, brilliant um, f- uh, session with the Whalers. Do you remember that? The Whalers doing "Stir yeah, It Up." Yeah, I mean, that was absolutely yeah. incredible. And about I don't know when we were in '73. Patty Smith. But the interesting thing is that the unfashionable stuff, and I'm talking about you know Rory Gallagher and Leonard Skinner and Argent and um, I don't know Steelers Wheel Super Tramp. Johnny Winter, 
you know those people that I mean, that footage just would, it, it would you know it wouldn't exist any, no, if, it, if wouldn't. it hadn't been for you know the, the, you wouldn't be having any record of those people in this country really and uh, it's one of the key bits of archive for uh, lots and lots of um, really interesting acts that would have been unrecorded otherwise so I, I really admire him for that so that was the yeah that was Mike larger than life character. Oh, I remember he's, my, my he's... fond memories of him were being on trains going to do filming for Old Grey Whistle Test. Mike would always be there. He used to wear a striped he had a striped shirt with a different coloured collar for some reason. He always wore oh, a yes, tie. He did. He, did. Do you remember? he wore a tie. Uh, he he, he often wore to- uh, 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 in Congress a sort of uh, you know a tour jacket given to him <laughs> tour by A and M Records or something. Yeah. Tour Jake with the ties, you know, often when he turned around, he would say something like Camel, uh, you know, tour dates, 1976. But he was, and, and he would be never happier than tucking into a kind of buttered Dover sole uh, on, a, on, a, on a, and a restaurant car, speeding towards, you know, Manchester for me to go and introduce uh, the Smiths or whatever it was, you know. He was a great I, I went, I went, I did a lot of filming overseas with Mike and America and Japan and various places. And, uh, you know, so I, I I ate in some fine restaurants with Mike. I'm sure <laughs> I probably never eat it again. You know, uh, but he he um, the interesting thing is um, if you'd have a day off in New York, I'd always um, go and buy records. You know, go go to Tower down on Broadway and just fill the basket with records that you never expected to see again. And Mike would always he'd always rent a car. And he'd say, do you want to come? And I never actually went. And where he would go, he'd go to uh, suburban or rural New Jersey um, and go to antique shops and junk shops and so, so forth. Because what he, he was a big ancient antique phonograph hound. That was his passion. I saw so, it. So he'd go down there and he'd find you know, little things that had been sold by somebody who used to work for Edison back in the back in the twenties or thirties or whatever, because you know New Jersey was Thomas Edison's territory. Yeah, you saw his collection. I, I went didn't you? to. He lived on a, a, a on a, a wonderful house on the edge of a farm down in Surrey, and he had a, had a barn full of these incredible old phonographs. I mean, I wonder where they are now. There's some museum, hopefully. They're absolutely beautiful. Yeah, he was fascinated with all that. Really interesting. Game. And, uh, you know, he is the person that you, you have to thank for Live Aid, you know, not far behind, you know, Bob Geldof and Harvey Geldsmith and the, and the other kind of prime movers because, you know, Live Aid was this in, absolutely enormous thing. And, and he was, at the time, the only person in, certainly in British television, Probably in world any real experience of, of, who could yeah, have done kind of a thing like that. Well, he hadn't done anything yeah. as big as that, but at least he knew what was involved in the logistics of putting on a live, live rock show. Now, that was pretty unprecedented, that one. But he was the only guy. You couldn't have gone to anybody else. There wasn't anybody ITV you could go to about that. There wasn't anybody at BBC One. There was just this guy running this... Um, Late night rock show that generally went on after the snooker, you know, and got shuffled about the schedules at, at the whim of, of higher powers. But he was the only guy who would know how to do it, you know, know where the cameramen were, knew what the technical requirements were, could get along with the the talent and all that kind of thing. You know, without Mike, that absolutely would not have happened. And and that applies and to... And he never you know, took any... 
Never took any credit for it. Never, never, you know, you'd think he would have, would have gone on about that at some length afterwards, but he was incredibly modest about it. Yeah, very modest, very modest. So, you know, there's a, a profound influence on uh, on a certain strand of British, uh, British broadcasting. It was. If not culture. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. I'm looking at, and I've sent you, actually, I'm looking at a PDF of, of the issue, the edition of Melody Maker from March the 21st, 1970, which is just over 50 years ago. And I, it caught my eye because uh, the cover, I just think, is the most Melody Maker 1970 cover I've ever seen. The headline is... It's fantastic, Air Force, it? Air Force and Havens for Plumpton. <laughs> it's just, it just, just roll, rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? None more MM. I know, it's fantastic. <laughs> but the thing that they mentioned, which of course was 50 years ago, was the great story of Brinsley Schwartz playing in uh, the Fillmore East uh, and Fame Pushers, who were the management company organising that uh, incredible uh, and backfiring uh, promotional stunt. And Richard Williams, uh, uh, old mate of ours, who runs a, uh, has a fantastic blog called The Blue Moment. I don't know if you read this. Did you read his? No, I haven't read that one. Go on. Oh, yeah, because he was on that trip. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, if you just Google The Blue Moment, anybody listening, you can you can find it. And it, it, it's really, really Well, put it in the show. So all these journalists, that. yeah, all these all these journalists went out there. It was Pete Frame, I think, from whatever it would have been, Zigzag, and Mark Williams from IT, and... Um, you know, Charlie Gillett, who was working for, I think, Record Mirror, uh, Richard Neville from Oz, and they all go... I mean, you, you know the story. They, they, were, they were told that, that, that they were being ferried out to America to go to Fillmore East to see this group that they hadn't really heard of, who were Brinsley Schwartz. And the whole thing was an absolute catastrophe, wasn't it, from the very beginning? I mean, first... The, pl- the plane, plane had to land in Ireland. <laughs> it landed in Shannon Airport because it run out of something wrong with its braking system, which is not a good run, sign. Run, run out oh, of gym. <laughs> Do you run out of gin? They get by the time they get to America. Every, all the, the hacks, of course, are absolutely plastered, and uh, a, a fleet of limousines then whisks them to the. And they arrive just as Brindsey Schwartz is coming on stage, all completely discombobulated and massively, massively pissed, and and are very underwhelmed by the group. The problem is they just think the group is a kind of nondescript country rock band. And uh, the journey itself has been so kind of catastrophic and fraught and ridiculous that nobody writes anything remotely um, positive about them afterwards. And and it it, it 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 became a kind of benchmark, didn't it, in promotional stunts that have gone spectacularly wrong. But it is amazing that people still talk about it fifty years later. I know. I know. So going going wrong was has a kind of benefit as well, doesn't it? Because it becomes part of the legend. Now I was really we well we were talking to you know Will Birch about this, weren't we? Uh, Recently, a word in your ear because he'd written the book. Yeah, about he's written Nick, that book Nick, about Nick. Yeah, Nick Lowe, and he's all he also wrote a book about. Did he write a book about the Brinsleys as well? Anyway, whatever. Um, but it, I think one of the points he, made, he makes in that book is that um, is that Nick watched the, the Van Morrison and the Caledonian Soul Orchestra or whatever, whoever it was, who were who were topping that bill, and realised that they that. What Brinsley Schwartz were doing just wasn't good enough, you know, because right. they, the, the kind of level of, of bands like Van Morrison's band, American bands at the time, was just a level above. They the, were the just a little 
parochial group, weren't they, in yeah, some yeah. old house that <laughs> were mucking about playing country songs. They just they they weren't professional enough, were they? They're, they're just, they were just a bunch of shambling amateurs, you know. They, they didn't so it did quite have project. some good effect. Yeah, no, absolutely. It probably did. It had a beneficial effect in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great story. The Word Podcast, one of the few things you really need in life. I do hope you've managed to catch up with our innovations that we've introduced in the last in the last few weeks. One of them is Word in Your Attic, which is available on YouTube, where we're coming to you not just in audio, but also in visual. We've established contact with each other uh, in our attics, and also we've reached out, as they say nowadays... <laughs> To other people's <laughs> attics, haven't we, Mark? We have, yeah. There's a, there's a, 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 a taking uh, advantage of this uh, visual element. There is a show and tell uh, dimension to this new uh, thing, where old mates of ours are digging things out of their attics, old fabulous old records, or just uh, uh, objet de pop culture that means something to us. And we've had um, we've had Mark Billingham, uh, who was absolutely wonderful. We recorded one with Jude Rogers, and uh, we'll be a there tomorrow. There's going to be there's going to be more to come. More to come. We're busy lining up more. We've also introduced a Patreon page where, if you feel so disposed, you can actually chip in uh, to um, to help this help this massive empire grow (laughs) and continue to keep you entertained and informed. And some people, let's call them inaugural patrons, you know, have already done so, uh, and they are. I'm going to read some of their names. We're going to do them alternately, aren't we, Mark? I'm going to go first. So thank you very much to Alistair Law. And to Carl Adlam. And also to Chris Lintot. David Carroll. And not forgetting David Chandler. And the great Ian Fenwick. And, of course, this ship of state simply couldn't move were it not for the involvement of Keith Adsley. Or possibly for Mark Forsyth-Taylor. And I would say nothing less about Matt Button. And one has to give massive props to Phil Kinderman. And you've always got to take your hat off to Robert <laughs> Simeone. A huge burst of applause for Sandra Austin. <laughs> no less for Stephen Maynard. The sky is black with chapeau when we mention <laughs> Steve Graham. <laughs> and finally, for this instalment, thank you very much indeed to Tim Riley. So if you'd like to have your name added to that that uh, role of honour, uh, please go and look at our, our Patreon page and we'll have the links to that and also to the Word in Your Attic series and in the show notes accompanying uh, this podcast. Um, I, I hope you've enjoyed it. What are you doing for the rest of the day, Mark? The rest of the day will involve the the, the, the one hour of uh, that we're allowed out. Me and my wife go for a fabulous little walk around the area, down to the river and uh, out to the park and stuff. Uh, I'll be listening to old folk albums, so I'm going through a bit of a folk uh, phase. There'll be some cooking. There'll be we're watching the, we're watching Buster Keaton's um, uh, uh, fantastic The General. Uh, our neighbours have lent it to us. We're all going to watch, all, about, about three or four households are going to watch The General by Buster Keaton and then talk about it on Zoom afterwards. Oh, so, uh, what about good. you? What are you up to? It's very, it sounds very cutting edge, Mark. It is The General. <laughs> we like to keep in touch. We're talking about the new Buster years King. old, that film. <laughs> I know, Buster Keaton. <laughs> <laughs> have you got the latest Buster Keaton? It's brilliant. You know. Well, I, meanwhile, you I'm, I'm off to listen to The Fountains of Wayne. This podcast was brought to you by The Word.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.